Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the Big MX Radio Podcast. Before we get going, I want to remind you that you can save money on Guts Racing by entering Big MX 20 at checkout. That's going to save you 20% off every purchase you make on GutsRacing.com. Also, you can mention Big MX Radio with WSA. When you get your brand new set of wheels from W, they're going to be awesome, they're going to look cool, and they're going to be super sturdy. And you can save money with W by mentioning Big MX Radio upon checkout. Same thing goes for Race Deck, by the way. You can also save 15% with Phoenix Handlebars. Big MX 15 saves you there. We've recently brought on heartbeat hot sauce and honestly their product is so good it is super tasty i've been adding it to breakfast lunch and dinner some snacks in between honestly i really really like that their their brand i love their product can't say enough great things about heartbeat hot sauce and on top of that they support the team solitaire yamaha team in the uh, east coast or west coast supercross rather so all the more reason to support those guys. You can get them on Amazon. You can also go straight to the website and help the, uh, to source them out. As well as uh, I've actually found them at a local grocery store, which is really, really cool to see. One of my sponsors there. Huge shout out to JC Sites and everybody over at Fox Racing Canada. Amazing people and they, may, they do great customer service uh, distributing Fox Racing Apparel to all of those amazing dealers, and you can head off to uh, a great dealer like Maple Ridge Motorsports and get yourself fitted from head to toe, and you're going to be prote- protected, and you're going to look good doing it at the very same time. All right, guys, let's do this podcast with Shane Drew. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I am so proud to have been able to bring this young this man onto our podcast, uh, just great guy and the the stories are unreal um i i can't wait to have him on again this the the podcast sort of meanders around quite a bit through his his current job to um his like yesteryear and even into his racing days um but that's just because there are so many different stories with shane that we could have gone through because he's been uh deeply involved within the sport of motocross for a really really long time um, and it was a pleasure to be able to have had to have him on and we're definitely going to have, have to have him on again. Um, like I said, thanks for listening. Now on to the show. Welcome to the Big MX radio <laughs> podcast brought to you by Racetech. Racetech gold valves, basically a revalve in a box. You can go to racetech.com and you can mention Big MX radio over email or when you call them to order your parts or service and you can save some money with those guys. Same thing goes with Luxon MX. Luxon MX is not just another triple clamp company. They are engineers dedicated to pushing the limits of the status quo. You can save 10% with Luxon MX with Big MX at checkout. I am your host, Brad Gephardt. I'm on all of these podcasts, this being episode 906 of the Big MX radio podcast. With me on the line, a guy who I have looked up to within the industry for as long as I've had motocross on my radar. This is a huge honor to have him on the show. And uh, honestly, it it still blows me away every time that he gives me even a, a few moments of his time on race day. He is the crew chief over at Factory Honda HRC for the North American team. None other than Shane Drew. Shane, how's it going? Uh, it's going great. So, how's it going? 
heading home after a long day's work. Uh, brand new position for you for this year as the crew chief over at Factory HRC. Congratulations on the promotion as well as the fact that you're also still doing your old job as uh, like you're looking over the whole, uh, whole machine, but also uh, I think your specialty being on the chassis side of things. Uh, well, thank you. I'll correct you a little bit, but uh, yeah, last year was my first year as 450 crew chief. Okay. So um, we're just continuing that that into that for the season. Well, you've been doing like so. Right, you've been doing that for uh, two years now, uh, working under the great Lars Lindstrom, who the two of you have been over at Factory HRC uh, on and off for a, a pretty decent amount of time. Uh, very familiar with each other, both mechanics at one point. Now uh, with the team manager and crew chief positions. Um, tell me a little bit about the day in the life, the week in a life of uh, Shane Drew, uh, otherwise known as Drewski, uh, on, a, on a weekly basis over at Factory HRC. Uh, in a lot of minds, still the preeminent motocross team uh, for the entire world, not just North America. Well, I want to uh, say something first that I joke with Lars that when I, when I first left Honda at the end of 14, Lars was still basically sweeping the floor. And now I come back and he's my boss. So I'm not quite sure how that worked out. But um, it's not exactly like that. But, yeah, that's our joke between the two of us. <laughs> um, yeah, no, uh, Factory Honda, yeah, I, I still think it's, our, it's, the best team. it's the best team in the U.S. It's a fantastic place to work. Um, I, you know, I'm very, thank my, I'm very privileged every day, and I'm thankful that I get to do, my, do something I love for my job. So um, it's all good. Absolutely. And of course, uh, like for those who aren't completely in the know, like uh, Honda being the largest manufacturer for small engine, whether it's uh, off-road, on-road, no matter what. Um, and racing is, is, is a huge part of the culture over there. They've been doing it since basically day one. They use it as a marketing tool. They use it to, to, uh, to kind of validate, like, the validity to their product and, and also to develop going forward into the next year's products and stuff like that. Um, you've been at the, sort of the forefront of that through got to be over 20 years uh, of, of product development, two strokes, four strokes, fuel injected carburetors, everything else in between. Um, it's been uh, quite the evolution that you've been on hand for. Yeah, it's definitely, it's still two wheels and, you know, riding through dirt but yeah it's evolved for sure um but it's amazing some some things never change though you know you'd be surprised it's the same thing i think time flies and i think back like damn we did this in 2001 we should bring that back kind of thing you know and it doesn't seem that long ago but it still applies to what we do today for a lot of things absolutely and uh that's actually one of the questions i had uh and i've mean to ask like some of the other people that are, are have been in the industry for a long time even a guy like uh, steve mathis of course uh you, you kind of helped him get into the industry is the the sport has changed like sometimes i watch super old races uh 70s 80s 90s uh not that the 90s are super old because uh L lord knows shane you were racing in the 80s and the 90s uh and you're still a spring chicken of your own right but my question is like is the sport of motocross still the sport that you fell in love with so many years ago it it's obviously different in a way but it is not any easier you know um okay. how do I, I put that like four strokes have changed things four strokes in a supercross stadium have changed things but it's 
like the athletes doing it are phenomenal and it's not it's not any easier to win than it used to be so um it's changed but it's still very difficult to get to the top that, that, that that's very well said that because so, i watch the old races and i just i see the dynamic around it uh like you said the character like the the athletes and the characters within the sport are are very similar they've got some uh similar traits i think there's a there's a toughness that's required to be able to uh and the commitment to excellence that is required to be successful at the pro level um but just like the, the bikes we ride the technology the the even the way we present the sport today is so much different than it was 80s 90s 2000s 2010s to even now um it's definitely been like quite the evolution of it um like you yourself having shown up originally uh, as a mechanic like uh you were box fan days correct yeah I, when i first came to the u.s as a race mechanic uh i was at nolene yamaha and i yeah drove a box fan for well i was box fan days when i was still racing obviously of course. My first couple of years as a mechanic was Boxman. Um, yeah, and then 97 when I went to Honda, that was actually their first year ever of getting a semi-truck also. So um, since then, it's been, yeah, no Boxman's. Yeah, the, the pits must have looked so different when it was Boxman's. Like, did they have each box van just like kind of side by each and like fans would come up to basically where you're working on the bike and you'd have a, like an easy up to sort of partition yourself off. Like nowadays, like you've got almost a thousand square feet of area for you guys to sort of operate and work on the bikes and hospitality and everything else like that. Whereas back then I, I assume it must've been so much more intimate with fans kind of looking over your shoulder a little bit. Yes. No. Well, the fans are still really close, you know, like, like, as our, our Honda team, we have two full full semis to go to every race. One's the tech truck, we call it. One's the hospitality truck. You know, we are ribbon off in between, so I have one, like, a huge footprint, like you say. But when you're actually working on the motorcycles, the fans are still very close. So, yes. um, I remember when I was still a race mechanic at, on the Honda team, I ended up being, for some reason, I liked being the last guy right at the very back gate of the truck, you know on the okay. far end, but the fans were right there all the time. So I spent, you know, the whole time I'm working on my bike, it felt like the fans were looking over my shoulder and that that's still the same way it is. So I think it's still, it's still pretty close, still pretty, you don't get far away. That That's a lot. That's pretty interesting. And I, I can only imagine the amount of time that you've spent having uh, either trying to ignore idle chit chat or having idle chit chat with uh, gearheads, across this nation year in year out like literally I, you've probably had the same conversation with a thousand people yeah probably but you know what nowadays in my role i i spend I, i'm not i don't i don't have a lot of hands-on things to do on race day but i'm busy kind of overseeing watching but okay. i try to i try to actually talk to all the fans that yell out questions and stuff and i you know i try to fill them in because because we all know those are the guys that make our sport, right? Like if it wasn't any fans, we wouldn't be getting paid to do our job. So I have more time now than I used to as a mechanic, but yeah, I try to interact with all the kids and the fans and, you know, try to, try to make them be big Honda fans, you know? 
Absolutely, you just hit the nail Absolutely. on the head. It's the people who who are buying oil. They're they're buying the hard parts. They're they're curious yeah. about the 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 different uh, sponsored pieces that are on the bike. That uh, maybe that specific piece isn't available to the public, but something very much like it. Maybe like a a Yoshimura exhaust system or, or something along those lines that that you have been on the Hondas for so many years. Uh, you have a, a meaningful conversation with somebody, and that turns itself into not just that sale, uh, but maybe that guy goes to the track and that influences three or four more sales uh, that ends up uh, sort of helping out uh, the sponsors that you work with. So let's let's get into your role today on Factory HRC. Uh, what does that look like uh, when you guys have a clean sheet of paper from the beginning of the year to what the bike uh, turns into by the time the checkered flag flies on the last race of the year? Well, you know, as, uh, you know, for instance, 2021 was a new model year for us on our 450. Um, And obviously we have some pretty strict production rules with the AMA racing. So we are confined, confined to a lot of the basic things that, you know, the bike comes with production, but um, day to day, my job, I oversee the mechanics. I oversee the engine guys. I oversee a suspension guy. Um, that said, I'm not an expert at all of it, but I have a really, really good group of people that I rely on, you know, to take their opinion. But I guess I, you know, nothing gets across the motorcycle that I don't know of or approve of. But I rely on all my, you know, the good people under, under me to lead me in the right direction. But also part of my job is I spend a lot of time talking to our engineers in Japan, uh, chassis engineers, en- engine guys you know, all the electronic guys, lots of zoom meetings, you know, lots of, lots of emails back and forth. Um, that's a lot of my day actually. Fair enough. Well, yeah, I I would assume that, that, um, having the position that you have now is, is maybe a little bit less hands-on than it used to be, but, um, yeah, like making those connections and, and getting back and forth with Japan, which, that that's actually something that is, I feel like we've sort of lost over the last maybe 10, 15 years of the sport, maybe even more time than that, is that there was a, a direct connection, it felt like, to, to the, the OEMs in Japan. Uh, from like a from a media and uh, like the coverage standpoint, like the they would actually send riders over there on a regular basis, which we don't do very often at all anymore. Uh, plus, like COVID might have a little bit to do with that, but even still, prior to that, uh, there really wasn't a lot of that. Um, like how far in advance, like, like obviously you guys had a new model year for, for 2021. Um, like how far in advance did you know about that motorcycle? You're getting details about that motorcycle. And like, obviously at the, like this week here, you're probably already talking about, uh, the 2025 model. Um, it, it, it comes and goes depending on upper management, uh, R&D department kind of people. Um, sometimes we are heavily involved. Sometimes we're not involved as much as we would like. Um, yes, the last year or so, we've had a lot of discussions on what's coming down the pipeline. Um, some of that has led us in a direction on our current race bike. Um, but as far as other manufacturers, I can only speak for Honda. I can't really speak for the involvement of the Japanese engineers on the other teams. Right. You know, um, but our, our Honda engineer involvement on Honda right now is actually really good. Um, 
we have a full-time HRC liaison representative or whatever you want to call them that he's our go-to guy that we run everything through um, setting wise, parts wise, uh, wish list, that kind of thing. And then that gets trans, you know, laid over to whatever the engineering department handles that part of the motorcycle. So right now we actually have a pretty good relationship with our Honda engineers, which is really good. I'm very thankful for that. Definitely. And having a good relationship with engineers would honestly turn itself into a a better end product for not only uh, the guys who are on the seat for the race team, but uh, ultimately also those who who go down to a dealer and uh, take a red bike home with them uh, when they leave. Um, Like all too often, like myself, I also work in the trades and uh, sometimes I end up having to go back and forth with, with building engineers who they might have an idea of what a material does in practice, which is different than how it is when it's on site. Um, is there yep. s- similar types of situations with that in motocross or is there more of a connectivity thanks to people like yourself? Um, I think, yeah, I, I, your example is perfect, I think. Um, like, like we have a lot of really smart engineers uh, designing us parts and products, but they get cycled through to other departments in Honda, like always. So we mm-hmm. always get new young guys coming in that are really smart, but really smart engineers, but maybe they haven't really seen, you know, their part, their, their, their product actually in action. So this much, often as we can, we try to get those engineers to come over and actually watch some races. Like, for instance, the first two rounds this year, we had a couple of our engineers here who hadn't really experienced Supercross live before. So that's hugely important. Um, And then I always look at it like guys like me who are just old dirt bike riders. I'm an engineer, but I've watched dirt bikes go around a track for a long, long time. And there's things like I go like, there's characters, like I say, like that bike, our bike shouldn't do that. And it's really good at that. So I always joke to him. I go, well, I'm a cowboy engineer. We'll figure something. And then you guys design it, figure out how to do it properly, you know, and send us a real good part. So that's kind of our relationship. Like they rely on guys like me to just, I've watched this forever for 40 years, dirt bikes going around track. And, you know, I, can see things that maybe other people don't i don't know and then i may not know how to fix it but they will if you could point them in the right direction so in in some respects you're you're almost uh mechanically bilingual in the fact that you can speak uh to the to the cowboys of uh jet lawrence and colt nichols and chase sexton uh but then also be able to to communicate with uh the the gentleman who uh actually can take pen to paper and uh and make something special happen or at least make what those guys are hoping can happen with their motorcycle uh come to fruition exactly like Way too often I find, like, I'll say, hey, we need to do this, this, and this. And they'll go, well, give me some data why. And I'm like, well, I can't tell you exactly why, but I just, I know it. You know, I see it. So sometimes we have that debate back and forth. I'm like, just go that way a little bit, and I'll, I, I promise you it's the right way to go. And sometimes I can convince them, sometimes I can't. So, Can you give me an example of, of a time you were able to and a, and a uh, time you weren't? Um, well, I'll say, 
I believe I've had some influence on our frame direction that we're using right now. Okay. I'll give you that one. Fair enough. Um, so that's that's an example. Um, when I was at Yamaha, I had some ideas for some stability in the front end that I was told was kind of dumb, but we tried it anyways. And two years later, it was production on a YZ450. So, you know, a oh. few things. Okay. Um, I'm sure you throw, probably throw your shoulder out patting yourself on the back with uh, the numerous instances that have come along over the, over the years that are like that. Um, how has the ideology or the method to the madness when it comes to setting up a supercross bike changed since the first time that we saw four strokes come onto the scene? Uh, the first thing that I notice when it comes to watching, say, races from the mid-2000s even into the mid-2010s, or into the mid, yeah, the, yeah, the uh, yeah, the mid to 2010s is like just how much more stiff the front end looks, as well as like j- just how much how much more stand up the bike has in corners. I feel like back in the day, the the bikes really used to either squat into the front of jumps or into corners uh, upon uh, acceleration. That doesn't seem to be that way anymore. Like the bikes are are really sort of level uh, most of the time. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I think generally the firmer that you can run, chassis, suspension, that still has a, not a harsh feel, let's say that, it just allows the riders to push that much harder and go faster. So then they want even more. So in that respect, it's never ending. It's like you get something... Chase Sexton's a perfect example. The guy... The guy loads the front end more than I think any rider I've ever worked with. So we give him something that supports that, and now he'll just go even faster. So we got to give him something more, and then we'll find out what the limit is, you know? So it it never it never stops evolving. Yeah, well, there's a number of guys in the past that have ridden similar characteristics. Uh, like it's kind of uh, almost re- renowned how uh, James Stewart back in the day would have uh, like basically uh, two by fours for uh, front forks and just continuously be able to keep pushing and pushing and pushing on that front end. Um, like, is there a limit? Do you think to that? Like, obviously, like these guys are going faster and faster every single year, and, and a guy like Chase is in many respects still in the infancy of his professional career this being his third full season on a 450 um but uh like honestly i i think there's uh like you could honestly say uh there's still a little bit more to be unlocked with that guy yeah the kid's only 23 years old you know um so being his third year 450 still young still i still think he's getting faster every month i see him you know and that goes back to the the better motorcycle we can give him, the faster he'll go. And who knows what the limit is for him. Um, but I agree with you. I don't think he's anywhere near it yet. Yeah, and honestly, same could be said for a guy like Jet Lawrence, who like he's he's an absolute Absolutely. lightning rod when it comes to uh, to to media and coverage. Um, I, it's still, I think he's the kid's still developing. He's not yet 20 years old. Um, and, and physically, I think a, like one of the biggest thing for me when I watch jet is that as he starts to sort of develop into his, uh, like a, a more of a, more of a man, more of like, he has more muscle yep. mass on him yep. than he did two years ago. Um, and he's able to push, 
uh, that again allows you to probably have a, a more stiff setup, which then again allows him to go even faster. Uh, and then there's kind of like that that endless cycle of uh, of stiffness uh, and and comfortability, allowing him to drop those lap times. Uh, yeah, hundred percent agree with you. Um, I would look at Jet and Chase right now as, in some ways, they ride very similar. They both use their their feet and their legs their leg strength better than anybody right now. Um, like you watch Jet and he, he uses his legs to put the bike and make it land on the, wherever exactly we wants on the track every time. Um, which him and Chase are the two best guys at that right now. So in that respect, they kind of do ride similar. Um, they're both very smooth when they're going that fast. Um, but yeah, they're, there, I think they are the two the two guys that are going to push the envelope for the next couple of years for sure. Certainly, and and how does that contrast to working with a guy like Colt Nichols, who uh, may not ride with as much aggression? He's certainly one of the most. He, I think he's one of the smoothest guys in the 450 class. Um, but with with that smooth style, you still need to be able to push the machine, like push through the rhythm sections and all that stuff. Uh, and he's on a different shock than uh, than Chase is on. Uh, how do the two? How do working with the two differ, as well as uh, setting up a motorcycle for the two of them to be uh, to be comfortable? Well, Colt's been fantastic to work with so far. Um, Great guy. And I think I yeah for sure. Um, I think right now he's he's nowhere near his even back to where he was. I don't believe that the guy got injured pretty pretty bad a year ago. Yeah. Um, didn't race for a, a year basically. Never really raced a 450, um, so he's got a lot on his plate, and it's it's a big ask. So uh, we're we're not putting a lot of pressure on him. I think he's putting more pressure on himself than we are. But he, I know he has a lot more potential than he's showing right now. So, um, but test wise, he's been great. He's helped us a lot. Um, it was really nice to get a fresh opinion of a, from a guy that's rode you know, a different bike for many, many years. You know, we kind of we kind of get down the same rut when you've had the same rider, same test rider, same. Even if it's not good, it becomes a normal feel. So it's nice to have a fresh opinion on a lot of things. Uh, but, yeah, Colt, Colt rides completely different than Chase, but his setup requirements have actually been surprisingly similar. Um, okay. But, yeah, so, so far Colt's really good at Fair enough. Well, that, that's good to hear because honestly, I'm I'm a Colt Nichols fan. I think he's a great kid. Uh, he, he's extremely well mannered, uh, extremely polite, and but at the same time, a fierce competitor. And like, I think you're totally right. I think uh, as he becomes more comfortable on a 450 racing it, uh, he'll he'll feel more comfortable going to those stiffer settings and uh, and with that, some drop dropping the lap times and and uh, and being able to do that. And then honestly, I think him. And um, Trey Kennard being uh, like pretty close as well, um, friends growing up and all that. That that's definitely got to add a little bit more just comfortability for him moving into a brand new team, like brand new team, brand new trainer, brand new bike, um, and Brent like on a 450 for the first time this year. Lots of change for him, especially after a year where he wasn't really racing in 2022. Exactly. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, him and Trey. Trey are. You know, Trey's just getting back riding again. He broke his arm a couple months ago. Um, but Trey's been a huge 
part of our test program. Um, and, you know, a lot of people don't – he doesn't get a lot of the, the the accolades that he should for how good a job he does for us. So I'm glad he's still on the program. Um, we're going to use him a lot going forward, especially in the outdoor testing. That's awesome. Yeah, like Trey Kennard, another great guy to work with. Um, you've been working with him uh, for quite some time, honestly, throughout his uh, like yeah. when he first got yeah. onto Factory Honda, uh, and then when you came back after working with Yamaha, he's now there as a, as a full time test guy and uh, someone who probably uh, like for the most part, like your average fan, he's probably fallen off the the radar as far as uh, how they keep track of him and all that stuff. Um, but uh, for my money. On, on any one day at a practice track, uh, Trey Kennard can probably still move pretty good, huh? Yeah, he's still he's still fairly quick on the test track. Um, still uh, competitive, you know. He's but I'll give you an example. We we did a whole bunch of outdoor testing last year before the MX series, right? Uh, Trey came down with us to Florida. We did five days of testing with with Ken Roxon. Um, Trey, everything, Kenny, we had everything we, every setting we come up with, we had Kenny and Trey ride it. So Trey was always within, you know, second half or two seconds of Kenny's times, you know. A couple weeks later, we went back and did the same process with uh, Chase. And he was like three, four seconds left slower than Chase. And he was so bummed out. I'm like, Trey, you can't be bummed out. Like, like Chase is going to dominate this outdoor series. And, you know, it turned out, him and Tomac were so much faster than everybody. Yeah. But but it really got Trey upset that he wasn't closer to Chase's lap times. <laughs> yeah, but that that's yeah. the competitors. That's that like that's these yeah. guys the way they uh, they expect from themselves. Um, and honestly, you, you can probably uh, like connect with that. You yourself were were a guy who uh, raced at a high level at at, at, at one point, and and even after uh, you stopped racing full time, uh, when you did sling a leg, leg over a bike, which I assume you probably did for quite some time after uh, you became a, a a working mechanic in the sport. Um, it's probably more frustrating than anything that uh, the skills you once had uh, aren't as maybe sharp as they once were, or uh, the the pace just gets faster, man. Well, honestly, I have not ridden road. That, that's, that's the correct way to put it. Yes, rode a uh, motorcar bike since 2010. That's not um, that long ago. Because wow, well, it's like 12 years ago, 13 years ago, right? So yeah, that's true. Um, I I used to ride once or twice a year, but like you said, my mind thinks I could ride like I did before, and I couldn't because I only rode once or twice a year. Um, and I thought this is a recipe to get hurt. I have I I decided that I either had to ride a lot more or not at all. So um, I'm I look at it. I'm fortunate to work with the best riders in the world every day. Um, I don't need to ride myself anymore. So that's how I come to grips with that. Fair enough. Well, you stay pretty connected to a sport that uh, a lot of people uh, watch from a distance. You are deeply entrenched in that. So uh, I could certainly see how uh, that experience would certainly scratch that itch. Um, before we move on to more talk about Shane Drew specifically, uh, I need to ask you about that BFR ch- shock. Um, 
it's yeah. it's it performs differently than uh, than what's on Colt's bike. Uh, I think Colt was on it for a short period of time, uh, and it's been sort of dabbled with in Supercross uh, in the past. Uh, I know that it's it's had a lot more success over in Europe. Uh, what does it do well? Where does it like? What struggles does it have? Um, and and what are your thoughts on it altogether? Well, we as a factory Honda team, we first tested it, I want to say 2013. Um, a little bit of supercross testing, a bunch of outdoor motocross testing, had good, had bad, but there were some things that weren't good about it. But it has since evolved a lot. And then with Tim Geiser's success on it in Europe, at the end of 21, I guess it would have been, we borrowed a shock of his from Europe. We tried it with... Uh, Trey Canard tested some good results, some okay, this positives, negatives. We tried it with Kenny, yeah, not so much. And we tested it with Chase, and he goes, I love this shock. So we planned on having, we weren't able to get a lot of them. So we got a hand, maybe four of them for the 2022 MX season. We got it right in the middle of Supercross, so we didn't even bother testing it with Supercross at that stage. But right. we got it for the last year's MX season. Chase immediately adapted to it really well and been using it ever since. Come come the fall, we said uh, we knew Kawasaki had played with it off and on, Supercross testing. Um, we didn't know how it was going to go, but we we come come up with some really good. The show guys come up with some really good settings early on when we first tried it, and it's like, yeah, we're going to run with this. Um, in our opinion, it it's settles the rear of our bike a lot it's very it's very calm feeling without being you know without being soft or packing down or anything but it's it's very like a calm feeling shock i don't know how you relate to that if anything else can relate to that but um so colt and chase tested it wrote it um we just last week decided to do some reevaluate a standard shop with Colt. So we raced that in uh, Houston. We may or may not go back to a BFR with him, but Chase is pretty much sold on it for him. It, it suits his riding style, you know, perfect. That's, that's encouraging to see. Uh, and here, um, like when, when you're watching, whether it be uh, film back at the truck or when you're down on the stadium floor, uh, and you're watching Chase's bike, you're watching uh, Jet's bike, or, or if you're watching uh, Colt or even Chance Hymas or uh, your most recent winner in uh, in Hunter Lawrence, what are you looking for specifically? Um, is it always the same thing, or are you looking at specific areas that uh, the rider's giving feedback on? Um, and sometimes when it comes to like giving, when rider gives feedback about one particular element of the bike, uh, does that distract you from issues that might be happening somewhere else in the bike that uh, you're not really able to notice because, hey, he's saying that, uh, oh, yeah, my, my shock's doing this, and um, like that's that's taking away the attention from somewhere else on the bike that might uh, need some attention. Well, there's there's been times when, you know, we'll have our download meeting after a race and like, hey, yeah, we got to work on the shock setting, blah, 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 so show guys we'll discuss it show guys will prepare you know some really good new new test part settings we'll go to the track and the rider will go no my shock's fine it's all the forks and we're like what do you mean it's not what you told us on saturday you know um so that does happen sometimes but um 
back to your first question. I think watching a bike, you can tell a lot by just the the balance, the pitch, um, how much it moves or doesn't move. But one of the real telltale signs, I think, is you watch if something's good is you can tell if a rider is comfortable or not right away. If they're, there's a lot of times we'll try something and the rider goes, yeah, I think it's good, but they just don't look good riding it um, or something. It's like, yeah, yeah, you, you can tell you're not riding it. You're not just coming natural to ride that setting. So let's go back and retest what you had, you know, as an example. Right. So, right. Um, but big picture, I think, the rider's feedback is obviously important, but I think it's really important Important also, like, show will come out with some new, come to the track with three or four new shock settings, say, for example, and they know from all their testing and dyno exactly what it does. So the rider may something give you a feedback that's completely opposite. So then you got to try to figure out, well, you're not going to say the rider's wrong with his feeling, but why is he feeling that settings way stiffer for example so we just kind of gotta put all those pieces together and figure out what the right direction is right and then that really comes down to being able to sort of uh speak the same language as the the rider uh as the some guys communicate things differently than others i'd assume that um when you worked over at uh, factory yamaha uh trying to communicate with a guy like aaron plessinger who is notorious for not being uh the most uh skilled test person in the world uh sometimes you have to read the tea leaves um and and sometimes like the eye test as well as what the the data is sending back to you might can be completely different than what what they're saying um and is there a way to sort of go about basically informing the rider of that basically saying like hey i know you said you're feeling this um but the numbers and what i'm seeing is telling me that how do you approach that when you're you're talking to uh some of these riders who uh, they're not to say they're sensitive, but, uh, like they, they, they do, they, they have a lot of pride in what they do. And, um, yeah, they're, they're only bringing something up if they, they feel like they're correct on something. Um, I like to, I like to try, ideally I like to test different things with riders and not, and not tell them what it, obviously not tell them what's supposed to do. Okay. At the end of the day, you can go back over. Yeah, we did. Uh, our test A, you know, we made this stiffer. Test B, we went this way. Test C, we tried that, and then try to educate them. But try not to give them, uh, you know, lead them into something before they try it. Um, and you know, not even sometimes the fastest riders in the world, they're not good at testing always. Or, or I, I was gonna, I'll say that. How do I word it? They're always feeling something but it may be hard to describe. So like you said, then you got to try to pick out why it is you're feeling something if your data or your information is completely opposite. Um, the other thing we do is if a rider cannot give us good feedback and we don't know what to do, we'll just refer to, well, this rider liked A, this other rider liked A, and our test rider said A is the best. We're just going to go with part A because we don't have a better option for you because you can't give us feedback, you know? So we'll do things like that all the time. Okay. So are, are you saying that I might be one of the fastest riders in the world, given the fact that I'm not a very good tester? That's possible, yeah. Okay, yeah. fair enough. Um, 
let's dial the clocks back a little bit to where you became the reason why Jeremy McGrath left Honda. Um, touch on yeah. that if you can. Um, a lot of people talk about the aluminum frame. Uh, I, f- I feel I f- actually I feel bad for the compound that is aluminum and Honda in general for getting that uh, like sort of that black eye as, as to why Jeremy left uh, when in fact it was because you were going to end up being his mechanic in 1997 when he uh, historically and famously headed off to Suzuki, which w- which would he would go on to have his worst season as a pro. Yeah, that's a, been a running joke for a while, actually, yes. between me and Jeremy. Um, yeah, I was hired, well, uh, from what I understand, Jeremy was having a lot of contract issues with the Honda management anyways, and then he really wasn't gelling with the, that aluminum frame bike. You can't remember, he had just spent three or four years dominating on a bike that did not change. So right. he was going to have to ride something completely new. And... Again, I wasn't at the team yet, but it sounds like it was not going well. So, um, funny thing is, I didn't, I wasn't even offered the job to be his mechanic till like, I don't know, December 15th, maybe. And we're going racing in a month, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I said, yeah, I'll go work for Factory Honda for Jeremy McGrath. It might be, you know, I might be terrible at it. Year I ever have at a factory team, but I'm not going to turn it down, you know? So I went down, did an interview, got the job, went to a couple test sessions. Uh, about a week later, we had a test session, and Jeremy just didn't show up. And my boss at the time, Cliff White, goes, yeah, we got a problem. Um, Jeremy's not resigning his contract. And I'm like, well, what happens with, to me? And he goes, well, you got a contract. You're good, you know? So I just became an in-house test mechanic for two years, which in hindsight was probably the best thing. Because right. on the factory level, I was very green going in on that level of a job. You know, I would have, you know, worked 100% to do whatever I had to do to do it. But I wasn't probably not prepared, for, not ready for it. So I Yeah, that would have seriously in-house. been uh, baptism, uh, by baptism by fire. Yeah, so I got to be in-house test guy. I worked under Mike Gosler and guys like that for a couple of years. And it was fantastic. And then, so then 99, when the Honda team expanded from two riders to four that's when i went to work with sebastian tortelli for four years okay so let's let's talk about tortelli now the honestly i was i was a tortelli fan his entire career the he he looked so good on a bike uh although uh, i i know he was rough on stuff and uh would, would break foot pegs off of bikes and stuff like that but i always thought that he had a really like such a signature style if he was wearing all black gear and all black bike you could still tell that it was uh sebastian tortelli at least i could and um yeah. he seemed like a really neat person to uh to race and he was one of the many characters that sort of existed within the sport late 90s early 2000s who uh, I think fans, even though he was French, uh, kind of gravitated to. He was a really, really nice guy. Uh, he was a guy who actually offered a, a challenge to, to Carmichael, not only on the Honda, but when he was on Cowies as well. Um, talk about moving to that a little bit and, uh, yeah, like working with, uh, with Sebastian. Sebastian was fantastic. Fantastic person, uh, good rider, good to work with. Um, I think he was only 19 years old when he to the U.S., full-time wow. Honda gig. So he was young, you know, like Chet Lawrence's age right now, basically. Um, two-time world champ, packed his bags, went to, went to America, you know. Uh, but he was 
really, really good, really determined, fit, strong, um, you know, would not quit for anything. But obviously, Supercross did not come easy for him. Um, the funny thing is, I think it was going into, so 99 was a struggle, Supercross. But going into 2000, we did a, I think it was 2000, we did a whole bunch of off-season, off-European uh, races in the off-season with uh, Sebastian and Ezra Lust went over to a bunch of them. And, and Sebastian was winning, like, almost everything. He, his Supercross game came around huge. Very first A1 press day shoulder. So, Ugh. you know, missed half the Supercross season. Um, so Supercross was always, he was always behind the eight ball. But outdoor, obviously 99, he probably would have, should have, could have, would have won the outdoor title in 99, but crashed at Unadilla and dislocated his wrist. So that was that. Right. But then the following right. year, that Ricky Carmichael kid showed up. And I think, in my opinion, Ricky Carmichael ruined Sebastian's career because Sebastian was so determined, there's no way in hell this little redhead kid was going to beat me. So he would ride way over his head, way over extreme, way over his limit because I'm not going to lose to this kid. And unfortunately, it threw him on his head a bunch of times. So I think that's the story of his uh, U.S. career. Yeah, no, I, I would have to agree with you. Uh, Ricky Carmichael, throughout his entire career, never lost an outdoor title in which he raced all of the races. Obviously, 1996, he only rode one. Is that correct? Sorry? I think 10 years in a row, is that correct? Yes, 10 years in a row, 1997 through 2006, um, including two perfect seasons. And uh, here's actually my favorite stat about Ricky Carmichael. Uh, Ricky Carmichael raced 35 nationals for factory Honda, both on a a two-stroke and a four-stroke. He won 33 of them. The other two races were uh, won by Kevin Windham, which were on back-to-back weekends. Um, so for 2000 and uh, from oh what the two, end of yeah oh two oh three and oh four, Factory Honda won every outdoor national overall for three years straight. That's correct. That's correct. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. That is that is like that is ridiculous amounts of dominance. That is like yeah. I think like yeah. like fans who just showed up in the last four or five years, like that is uh, that is a level of dominance that I don't think will ever be re- replicated. It was uh, literally every single weekend, me uh, listening to the the like the race broadcast with Tim Cotter or, or he was a he was a, a webcast and uh, just listening for for how much of a lead. Ricky Carmichael had after lap three or four, and it was over. It was gone. See you later. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, the bonus money was great those three years. I would imagine. Um, <laughs> so. What was it like working with Goose? Like, uh, that guy hitting uh, itself. He, he's a guy I would love to have on the podcast. I think he would have to be like, Goose, uh, yeah. Goose came to Houston and was uh, hanging out with us all weekend in the Honda pits. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I love we invited that. him out there. He was kind of good friends with the, uh, Chance Hymas and their family, so Hymas' first pro race, so we invited Goose to come out. And um, Goose is awesome. Like, I first worked with him in 1997, right? And then I 
worked with him at Honda for a bunch of years, worked with him at 2-2 Motorsports, worked with him at Yamaha for a couple of years. Um, yeah, he's, he's, he's my mechanical idol, let's put it that way. <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, like he worked with Lamson. He worked with Yogi. He worked with who did he work for prior to getting Carmichael? Uh, well, he worked with Yogi, and then right. he was actually working in house, kind of doing the job that I ended up doing. Okay. Um, and then middle of '03, Supercross had yeah. some issues with. Ricky's mechanic and Goose started working for Ricky Carmichael, and then he just ran with that for a bunch of years. Okay, so no, we we need to talk about the motley crew that is yourself, Goose, and Chad Watts. Because I don't think, like, I think you you and you and Goose might be thick as thieves, um, but all three of you were were really good at working on bikes. But I I think the like I love I love Chad Watts. He's been on the podcast a number of times uh, in the past. Uh, and first time I called him up, he thought I was a telemarketer. Um, but either way, um, like that, he he's a bit of an odd duck. I think he would even admit well, to that. But yeah, yeah tell me a little bit and, about him. And, but as a mechanic, Chad did a fantastic job. Yes. You know, um, thorough, like unbelievable. Um, yeah, he, he had his own personal demons, let's put it that way. But as a mechanic, he did a really, really good job. Yes. Like, I, I can only, I'm only, like, I'm so curious about the dynamic of, like, build days and, and, uh, and, like, on race day. Uh, like, he was quirky, RC was quirky. And honestly, the, the team at the time, like, uh, say, like, take 2002, for example, Ricky Carmichael, um, Nathan Ramsey, Tortelli, and Morocco, and, and Ernesto? Well, because I worked for him in 03. So 02 would have been Ricky, Sebastian, Nathan Ramsey, and Ernesto, I think. Yeah. Like, that would, that would have been pretty wild to, like, just be, like, on on scene for those build days and all that I think sort of I might stuff. lose you in this part of where I'm driving for a couple minutes, but... That's okay. Um, if you drop the yeah, call, I'll just yeah. call you back. Yeah. Um, yeah, then I think even like 99, we had uh, Yogi, Sebastian, Kevin Windham, and Mikhail Pichon. Like, that was That's the right. powerhouse. That's right. Yes. Yes. Could you so imagine the Factory Honda having Factory four Honda. riders today? Well, we... I think last year we had Ken Rocks and Chase Sexton, both number one riders. Right. Jet Lawrence, Hunter Lawrence, riders. Yeah. Essentially, that's that's a, essentially the same team. But I, I mean, all in the, the premier class. But yeah, the, those all those guys require a lot of attention, and uh, yeah, they're anyone yeah, anyone the, four of those guys can win. Technically, the not technically the premier. Our. Our team effort on the 250 program is every bit as every bit as much effort as the 450. Um, so it's it's yeah it's it's a lot of work. But For sure. Like, talk to me. Talk to me a little bit about that change. Obviously, uh, like factory connection. Um, was uh, the 250, 250 entity for Honda for a lot of years. I think the last time yep. prior to that, that uh, factory Honda was running a 250F was either Tommy Hahn or um, uh, Andrew, Andrew Short. Tommy Hahn, somewhere around there, yeah. I think Tommy yeah, Hahn, maybe. So yeah, so... 
tell me a little bit about getting back into the, the little bikes, uh, how they differ from making a, a, a 450 go really good. I assume on the chassis side, they're probably easier to work with because uh, there's, there's less horsepower involved. But so, uh, what's different about working So when on? was it? Was it twenty end of 20, right, that uh, the factory connection team uh, closed? So for yes. 21, we brought over Hunter and Jet. Um, it was kind of a last-minute deal, I think. It made, yeah. For a big corporation, Honda actually put that together very quickly. Um, but we brought the two riders, and I think, I want to say six of their staff, five of their staff, something like that. So we kind of brought it over as a whole package. Hey, you guys got a winning program. Uh, the bike isn't changing for that year. Just run with it and go. And we just uh, used our resources that we could help them. Um, Chassis-wise, engine package was really good that they had. Um, so 21, no, 22 then was their year on first year on the new chassis. So that was when we kind of more melded together our both of our teams, both sides of our teams, um, with great success, you know. So, you know, the, the chassis shares 250, 450, but obviously the 250 isn't near as sensitive as a 450, everything handling related. Um, but... The, the 250 program has done a fantastic job. Obviously, the results speak for itself. Um, so Honda's been spending money. They've been putting budget where they need to. Um, and the, the results speak for themselves. You know, we've had good success with it. Certainly. And you're going to have, uh, you'll have like Jet Lawrence coming back up to the the 450 class for for supercross uh yeah. from a from a crew chief standpoint yeah. Yeah. um like what's the process of, of getting jet acclimated to a 450 come at like round one of the outdoors uh you don't have to give me dates specifically but i would imagine the kid's probably going to be testing that thing pretty extensively well, um or maybe he already is well remember we did two or three weeks of testing with them before motocross of nations last fall. So, yes. Um, the funny thing is when team Australia first approached Honda, Hey, we want Hunter and jet to ride on our team. They actually wanted Hunter to ride the 450. Interesting. And we thought about it. Like for us, that did not make any sense at all. So we said, jet's going to ride the 450 because that way it gives us a huge for this following year when he's going to race for 450 anyways. So we spent two or three weeks testing with him for donations. We all saw that result. The guy rides a 450 phenomenal. Um, so outdoor motocross, we have a pretty good base. We're okay. actually going to do some supercross testing with him here in the next couple of weeks. With the plan, he's not doing any supercross racing, but you know our super motocross three-round series at the end, the plan is he's going to ride a 450 at those. So... Okay. We want to have a, you know, a supercross base set up for them, ready for that. Um, Fair enough. But the other motocross, we have a pretty good base setting. We'll try all our new bits and pieces with them before the season. But um, yeah, I think we we're, we're we're moved along pretty good. It should be fairly seamless him coming up to the 450 side. 
Absolutely. There's probably a few of my listeners that were just screaming at their radio uh, for me forgetting the fact that uh, probably one of the most impressive jumps to the 450 that I've seen uh, in recent history with motocross Des Nations, which to me, it's always going to be Des Nations. I know people call it of nations, but to me, that makes no sense. Um, at the nations this last year, him on a 450 wins the MX three class. Um, like I, I know like you're probably not like, you're no longer, uh, surprised by anything that jet Lawrence does. Uh, but even were you a little bit, uh, uh, taken aback by the fact that he was able to, uh, have that much success on, on that bike so quickly? Um, no, in the fact that when we were testing with him, at one point, he asked me, he goes, hey, Drewski, how do you think I ride the 450? I said, Jet, I go, if you race it just the way you are riding it and testing it, you'll have no problems. You can win. Um, I go, just, you just have to make sure you just keep riding it the way you are right now. And sure enough, that's what he did. So it didn't surprise me at all that him and Chase, I expected him and Chase to be battling one and two in both of those MX3 motos. So that actually didn't surprise me at all. Okay, so so this summer, as the crew chief uh, of of probably a, a team that's going to be fighting for for every single win going forward in the in the nationals, uh, word is that uh, we won't have Eli Tomac on the line. Uh, it it kind of sounds like a table set for two. We haven't seen two Honda combatants go tooth and nail for a, uh, for an outdoor championship since two thousand and three. When uh, we talked, we already talked about it. Ricky Carmichael taking ten of those wins, yeah. and Kevin Windham yep. taking uh, the other two. Um, yeah, it should be some good, healthy competition. You know, um, we as a team are fully prepared to give a hundred percent support between both riders. Um, as a team, you know, as long as we win, we finish first and second. That'll be fantastic. You know, that's the ultimate goal. So we'll see how it goes, but. They'll, all, they'll both have uh, full support and see what happens when the gate drops. Who did you work with after uh, after Tortelli moved on to Suzuki? Um, and like he was never there when he could have. I guess he he could have possibly uh, ridden a uh, a CRF 450 outdoors. Was that ever talked about? And I, I assume the bike was probably uh, available to him at some point. Um. To Sebastian, is that what you asked? Yeah. Yeah. So I, what was so O2 would have been Sebastian's last year? Yeah, with us. Right. Um, and we had Larocco was on it, I think. Losing my, I know I worked for Larocco in O three on a okay. two strokes. Um, Did he not ride a four fifty with uh, Paul Delorier as his mechanic in like either O one or O two? No, no. Because 03, I worked for the Mike, and he was still on a two-stroke. Um, oh, even the end of O. The end of what was it? Was it 2001 that we had Rhino ride the prototype 450? Does that sound that right? That was 01, yeah, against the Cowie. That was 01. Yeah. So 02, then we had just Nathan Ramsey riding it. Is that what it was? I believe so. Yeah, I think actually he might have dropped down to the the. Oh no! I think he might have been on a 450. I know the only other guy I know of that was doing well on the 450 in 02 and 01 would have been uh, Kyle Lewis. And Kyle was just like ripping starts. Maybe, maybe just, 02, yeah. Because 01, yeah. it was still a 02 was the first production year. 
01 right. was still a prototype. Which I know at the end of 2000, we went to Japan, uh, Sebastian and I, and he raced it over in Japan. That was the first uh, public outing of that bike, and it was still very much a prototype. What was that like, work, working on that thing? Or were you even working on it? Yeah, well, no. Um, yeah, I was working on it. Let's say I you know, put on handlebars and uh, did the maintenance during the day, race day, but it was such a full-on, one-off factory bike that there was swarms of Japanese engineers doing most of the work. But we went over and tested for, I want to say, probably three, four days, and then raced it on the weekend, and then came home. That's incredible. That that is so cool to like honestly to have you on the phone right now. You're literally at ground zero of when essentially the sport changes, like two stroke to four stroke, uh, and all of the the evolution that's happened since then. Uh, the first time you laid on eyes on that bike, that must have been pretty unique. Yeah, it was it was pretty cool. Um, the 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 funny thing is the the carburation was terrible on it. You know. Okay. I think I want to think like. The day before he was supposed to, we were still testing uh, back-to-back between a Keen carburetor and a Makuni because we had no idea what they were going to race with because they both were terrible, you know? So um, so I think the biggest improvements to four strokes is fuel injection by far. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah. yeah, even the, the four strokes that I rode, I rode uh, the KX250F, and that thing was uh, heavy. And, and yeah, it was like the, the, the carburation was still not that great almost 10 years later on those things before they went EFI in 09, um, working for Michael Arocco, that's gotta be a cool, a really interesting, uh, experience given the fact that he's the last guy to have won a championship aboard a 500 and, uh, being his mechanic must've been a pretty unique experience given the fact that for the majority of his career, aside from a couple of instances where I think either yourself or Paul Delorier was spinning the wrenches for him otherwise it was always big mike it was his dad yeah that's true um so at the end of 02 when when sebastian was leaving um i didn't have a rider to go to um and my boss at the time chuck miller he goes well we'd like to give larocco some more support over at factory connection would you like to work for him for the year so he had a full works bike. Um, I prepped it at Honda. I prepped it in the Honda Semi and just rolled it over to their truck on race day. Um, but, yeah, Mike and I got along great. He was fantastic to work with. To this day, he's probably one of the best riders I've ever seen for jetting a two-stroke motorcycle. It's I like, like that. He like come in, that. hey, I want this needle, the second clip position, this pilot, and, uh, yeah, set the air screw here. Sure enough, you know, that's what we did, so... It was that was pretty cool. The 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 carbur the carburation and and jetting a bike back then like it, I just find it's such an interesting way of like how how much that has changed from what it's like today with all the ECU stuff. And actually, I wanted to ask you guys about now working with with Get, which is a, a new technology that you guys are a new new brand you're working with for 2023. Uh, the stark contrast from yeah, uh, Mike Larocco coming in and giving you some some jetting specs uh, versus now where uh, it's all electronic, it's all there, like the the data is right there on the on the screen for you to make the adjustments. Yeah, it's um, with the electronic fuel injection. In some ways, it's easier, but some ways it's actually more difficult because okay, um, the I would this is just my opinion. The, the the bikes are carbureted, we'll say, so good right now 
that the riders have any tolerance for a little hiccup or a little something. Back in the day with carburetors, you just had to have your level of, yeah, it's good to bog here or do this, and if that acceptable or not, you know? Right. Um, now the things are almost perfect, so the slightest little glitch or hiccup or weird idle or something, they're like, ah, you know, the rider just is like, fix it, you know? So constantly looking at uh, looking at data and constantly trying to improve it, you know? I think it was funny. Um, the reason why I come up with this theory is when we did the straight rhythm with uh, Kenny a couple of years ago. Right. Kenny hadn't ridden a carburetor bike, I don't know, forever. Maybe not even a four-stroke ever carburetor bike. So it would do some bogging and some things like just remember back, yeah, that's kind of normal, you know? And he'd like, oh, what's going on? I can't ride this bike, you know? So it was it was big stress for him riding a carbureted two-stroke around a supercross track. Yeah, I, I think every once in a while, if those guys are complaining about how the bike is running, uh, just wheel out like a, a 2006 CR450 in like race trim, uh, probably one that was uh, prepared by Lars Lindstrom, and uh, and then roll that out and yeah. be like, this is what they used to be on. And then whoever, if it, whether it's Jed or yeah. if it's uh, Chase, they'll be like, you know what? I think my bike's pretty good. Yeah, maybe that'd be a good idea. Might be on to something. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe uh, throw, throw that hey, bug in the back, air. Back, back to that straight rhythm. Okay. I think it's pretty amazing. Um, we we unrolled a 14-year-old two-stroke and Kenny won on it. You know, it's pretty cool. Absolutely, that's cool. Absolutely. And honestly, when I, when I watch that, is I, I think that really speaks volumes to the level of skill that these guys have. Um like I got even like for for Kenny this last year, where the the guy's I don't think has ever raced a Yamaha his entire life. He jumps on a basically like for all intents and purposes yeah. stock YZ250 well, and tuned YZ250 and yeah yeah rides it great and and just makes the thing sing. Like yeah. that is that is a, one, a perfect one example. Of the most talented riders ever. Yeah. You must have really enjoyed working with him for the time that he was there. The like, you weren't there for all six years that he was there, but uh, working with Kenny, um, yeah, tough to beat. That's just that was a like honestly, as as much as I like it, like I was bummed to see him leave Factory Honda. I think that was uh, a a really good combination that uh, probably shouldn't have stopped. Well, you know, in all honesty, Kenny, fantastic human being, right? Loved working yes. with him. But honestly, probably the one of the most difficult riders ever to work with. So okay. um, it was, you know, but that said, I got his wins since his injury, you know. So I was kind of proud of that. Um, but he's a person. I wish him, wish him all the best, and I wouldn't be surprised if he wins some cross races this year. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Like, uh, yeah, he's he's got he's certainly got the skills, uh, and he's he's by no means as, as like he's he's nowhere close to being the oldest ever uh, to win a race. Like, uh, he's he's just is he just thirty? Uh, twenty nine, thirty. I'm not sure. Twenty nine. Yeah, you see, like there, there's still lots of meat on the bone there. Um, but what made Ken uh, so difficult to work with? Was it uh, like? The, the level of frustration he has with himself when he doesn't perform at his best. Uh, like, I think that's probably a commonality among guys who really hate losing. 
Um, what, what made him difficult to work with? Um, I would, I'll probably say he was so hot and cold. Um, when he was on, he was, as we know, he was so good, right? And he made, made the bike look so good and just rode it phenomenal. But the days he wasn't on, whether it was health reasons or whatever, he, he really struggled with setup. And it was hard. The guys can't rock and you want to do whatever you can to make them comfortable and win. So it was always hard to go, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with your bike, Ken. You're just not, you don't have it today, you know? So, so we were always searching on the bad days. We were always searching to improve something. But on the good days, he was unstoppable. So I guess the highs and lows was what made it really difficult. Yeah, certainly. And especially yeah. if you have like uh, a setup that like every bolt's the, the same torque spec, every, every, every clicker's in the same yeah. position. The guy yeah. goes out at uh, St. Louis 2019, goes, and goes, goes out and gets himself a win. Awesome. Um, 2020. 2020, right. That's right. That was, the, that, was his, that was his first race back. That was my first. That was, I think, the second race of the year. That was my second race back on the team too. So yeah, I there remember you go. 2020. No big yeah. deal. Yeah, again, throwing your shoulder up, patting yourself <laughs> yeah. on the back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, like going out there doing that. Uh, Fat bar 36. Those didn't last very long, by the way. Uh, and no. uh, yeah, like like going out there, and then maybe six weeks down the road, uh, like same torque specs, same clickers mm-hmm. everywhere else, and he's not feeling it. Like that. That's got to be a frustrating feeling for him and for the team. Yeah, um, so 20, you got to remember when the whole thing shut down with COVID after Daytona, we were actually, I think, tied for first in points with Tomac. Um, And then, you know, going into Salt Lake City for seven races or whatever it was, was not ideal for Kenny with his health and asthma at the time and high elevation and not good air. And so that was probably not a good combination. Um, and he kind of, you know, kind of just wilted under the pressure with that one. So yeah, yeah. It's frustrating, but, but yeah, I, I have a hard time saying anything bad about Kenny. Great person. Certainly. Absolutely. Certainly. That, that must've been a very odd, like 18 to 24 months within the sport with, with like, uh, having races, like, first of all, races with no fans, that was weird. And then doing the residency thing where there was, uh, I think we, we started out, we, there was no race in Anaheim. There's no race in California for an mm-hmm. entire year. I don't think people realize that. Like, that's like, that's almost kind of been dro- blocked from everyone's memory that we straight up just didn't go to California for an entire uh, calendar year aside from yeah. uh, two races in, uh, in Fox Raceway. Um, that must have really been uh, just like kind of thrown the, the, the team into a loop uh, as far as like get trying to get uh, product and testing and everything like that. Uh, you guys had to be super flexible, and uh, that presented a lot of challenges, I imagine. Yeah, definitely flexible, and I got to give a lot of credit to our management, uh, Eric Kehoe especially at the time, for figuring out how we could go racing because there was some high up in American Honda that – from what I heard, didn't really want us to go racing in COVID. We were, we were on shutdown, you know? Um, so we had to figure out how to do it. Um, one of the odd things is we'd have our 12, 13, whatever people flying to the races every weekend. And we all had to have separate rental cars yeah. in order to be yeah. corporate compliance. We could not share a rental car. So it was like, we all show up on a flight and we all run to the Hertz and, race to the stadium in 12 different cars, you know, it's kind of funny. 
Um, but those residency things were weird because I, I've been doing this a long time and I still get really excited to travel and fly and hotels and go to the races. I'm excited tomorrow. I'm flying to a race. But going somewhere and staying for 10, 11 days was really strange. And then go to the next town for 10 days and the next town. Like, that was really weird. That, that was not normal. Certainly. And then on top of that, like next to no testing time, one race to another, like uh, when they were in Houston, they did three races in eight days. Um, Like there was no real improvements to the motorcycle. I'd imagine from one day to the next, aside from like small incremental changes, like that really must've put you guys kind of between a rock and a hard place as far as being able to accommodate uh, the rider, if you wanted something different or changed, or uh, you guys are kind of handcuffed by basically like, yeah, we can't go test because we have another race in 24 hours. Honestly, honestly, it was probably great because <laughs> we did three races in Houston, then three races in Indy. Ken yeah. Rocks and I want to say won three or four of those rounds. He did. And we were not able to test and we were not able to mess his bike up. Hey, this is what you got, ride it. And he rode the wheels off it, you know? So in hindsight, maybe it wasn't a bad thing. Yeah, well, it, that, that's like, maybe that's just, uh, yeah, maybe it's a recipe for success going forward. Um, talk to me a little bit about some of the guys that work uh, underneath you as far as the, the mechanics. Like, I, I'm good friends with Brandon Zimmerman. Uh, I think he's oh, one really? of the salt of the earth. Yes, I, I'm a big, big fan of Brandon. Uh, great guy, hardworking kid. Uh, he, he, like, he, he dots his I's, he crosses his T's, extremely respectful uh, and somebody uh, who, like, anytime who's, any guy who will take the time to give uh, me the time of day is, is usually pretty high in my books. Uh, tell me a little bit about working with him and just seeing him progress uh, over the time that he's spent with Chase so far. I'm fortunate that the two uh, race mechanics I work with, Brandon and Jordan Troxel, are both extremely good. Um, Jordan's fantastic, probably one of the best mechanics I ever worked with. And Brandon is right up there also. He's quiet. Um, doesn't complain much, just does his job, but he's the perfect fit for Chase. Um, I'm glad actually Chase's dad, when we were looking for a mechanic for Chase last year, Chase's dad recommended him. He knew him from, I think Adam, I guess Adam Cincerello. Um, yep. he goes, what about that Brandon guy? How can we get a hold of him? Cause he wasn't race mechanic at that time. So we got a hold of him. I remember we went. We interviewed him on a Saturday down at Honda because he had a full-time gig with Cowie R&D, I believe. Yes. Um, so we made a special trip down to Torrance. We interviewed him on a Saturday or Sunday maybe even. Um, and right away, like, yeah, this is if he accepts his job, this is going to be a great guy having our team. So unfortunate. Two great mechanics. Um, really good engine builder in Bob Reichman. Uh, been at Honda forever. Was road race engine builder for a long time. Been on the motocross side since... 2011 2012 i think um does a really good job on our engines um our showa mechanic a showa technician guy named derek atkinson um worked with him off and on for a few years but he's uh he was jet and hunter's suspension guy last year and then this year we brought him over to kind of oversee all of the suspension um r&d and development on for all of our bikes so He's heavily involved in our 250 or 450 program also now. Um, really smart, smart suspension guy. And then, you know, uh, we got, you know, it's a slew of guys. Great support um, from Japan, 
um, Grant Hutchison. I don't know if you know him. Yes. He's our 250 crew chief. He is actually moving over to share the workload with me when uh, when Jet moves to the 450. So Okay. Um, him and I worked at Yamaha for a couple of years, and then it took me for, for two years to get him the right position over to get him over to Honda. So he came over at the start of last year. So he's heavily involved in all of our uh, wiring harnesses and electronics. So he's really good at that. Um, we just got a, we got a really good group of guys. Everyone works well together and not scared of working hard, you know? So everyone just gets the job done. Yeah, it seems like you guys have uh, a, a really, really strong uh, team unity. It seems like everybody over there, every time that I kind of roll by, everyone seems to genuinely enjoy what they do and the people that they work with. Uh, and I think that, uh, I don't want to blow too much smoke up your ass, but I think that's a huge testament to uh, yourself, Lars, and the, and the culture that you guys have built in and around that team. Yeah, I gotta, I'll take a little bit of credit, but not too much. Um more credit than Lars, I, I assume. Lar- I give Lars a lot of credit. He's, um, bef- but before him, Eric Kehoe did a fantastic job, and he basically put all the pieces in place with who we have now in staff. And I give Lars a hard time that he's just, you know, jumped in and running what Eric set up for him. But um, Lars does a really good job because, you know, he's serious, but he's also still, you can joke with him and lighthearted, and you know, you know, the mood's good at the truck and all this stuff. You know, not too serious every day. Um, but that said, there's a lot of ball busting going on. Nobody escapes without getting harassed daily at our team. Um, but it's all in good fun, and everybody everybody is working towards the same goal, so that's good. I think that's a, a really important piece there. And honestly, um, like, the fact that, like, I, like – when it comes to like uh, whether uh, any team mentality, even like when I play beer league hockey, still played the other night, a couple of goals, no big deal. Um, you need guys to sort of give each other a hard time. And honestly, I've said this a million times. If I'm not giving you a hard time, it's because I don't like you. Yeah, that's maybe true. Yeah. And you got to have thick skin, right? Like yes, I'm, I, I dish it out quite a bit. I give everyone a hard time, but I take it too. You know, the guys abuse me every day. So, but I'm, I'm cool with it. It's, uh, I love the guys I work with, so it's fun. And, you know, I spend more time with them than I think I do with my wife. So I better like who I work with. Well, certainly. Yeah. Especially when you guys are sharing, uh, I assume you guys are probably back to sharing, uh, uh, uh rental cars now. Uh, what do they give you yeah, a hard time car. about? And, and, and oh, give me something that you get, give, uh, give Zimmerman a hard time about. Um, I don't. Let's see. What do I give Zimmerman a hard time about? Um, he is real famous for, we call him Houdini, because um, he'll be there working in a stall, and next thing you look over, and he's gone. And that's it. He's just he's ninja dust. Building. See you later. The <laughs> yeah, old Irish ninja. goodbye. So we call him Houdini. Yeah. Um, now, Zimmerman, I don't know well enough yet to find out what I can give him a hard time about, so I'm still working on that. If you know anything, let me know. Um, but on me, they, 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 they bust my balls on everything. One being Canadian. Um, yes. Two being old. Um, you know, I like to, uh, they asked me what it was like with air-cooled engines and two shocks, things like that, you know. Um, but I, I'm, I'm okay with it. 
Fair enough. Well, then those are valid questions uh, because the last time that you scored a point in AMA Pro Motocross was, uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, uh, August 16th, 1992, uh, 500 class, which was won by uh, Jeff Stanton, uh, who was he he finished, finished just ahead of Mike Kudrowski and um, Jean. I scored 92. Was that Millville? Probably. Mill, yes. You scored one point. Score points in ninety two. Oh wow. Yes, you did. You got twenty. You got you got twentieth in the second moto. So uh, you got one point, okay. but it is points. That's that's more points than I've ever gotten at a, at a pro race uh, in the states. So uh, yeah, man. Like, do you what? Do you remember much about uh, that particular year, nineteen ninety two? Um, ninety two, I believe, was my last year of racing full time. Um, yep. I was definitely. Yeah, on the on the the down slope. Um, I think my best year was eighty nine. Maybe eighty nine and ninety were probably eighty nine was probably my best year. Um, I think one of the years eighty eight maybe. Millville eighty eight. Yes. My best. Uh, I I remember I ran the 17th. first moto five hundred overall. Maybe did I go yeah, like seventeenth overall at Millville or something? Yeah. Um, the first moto, I think I was like sixth or seventh for like 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And I got so tired. I think I finished 14th or something the first moto. But I remember like I was well in the top 10 for almost the whole race. I'm like, yeah, that was, that was, that was special. Um, and then I might have been so tired. I may not even come up with a second moto if I remember right. Yep. 14.29, my friend. Oh, there we go. What a memory. <laughs> you still got. You're still pretty pretty sharp, even yeah, though you're yeah, just an yeah. old Canadian guy. Uh, how often do you yeah. head back to uh, Thunder Bay, which is the a new hometown of one of my most uh, recently uh, signed sponsors in uh, Heartbeat Hot Sauce? Yeah, that's pretty cool that they're from Thunder Bay. I did not uh, realize that till all the. You know, I obviously never heard of them until um, Team Solitaire's press release. You know, which is really yeah. cool. Um, I used to go back once or twice a year, always um until covid hit um so two and a half years or so i didn't go back but i went last year after millville so last july i was up there um my dad's not doing great he's getting old he's 88 years old um struggling in the hospital so but you know it's difficult because i'm 1800 miles away or whatever it is so i gotta i gotta get up there more often than what i do somehow you know, to see him. So, um, to answer your question, I don't go very often, but I should not nearly enough, but you know, you guys are on such a schedule from like, and it's not, it, the, your year does not start j- at the first week in January for the first Supercross. You guys are hammered down for eight, 10 weeks out it from never there. Stops. It never stops. It never stops. It never stops. And and I think that would be the crux as to why you haven't been able to come back is I, I don't know when you would take that time. Perhaps, um, like there's usually maybe two, three weeks at the very end of the season. But I, I know for a fact that, uh, you guys like to get in some super cross testing right at the very end. So, um, um yeah, yeah like, uh, and hopefully, hopefully we do motocross designations again. Yes. Um, so, uh, yeah, then super cross testing. So that, that's, that's um, going to be, uh, yeah, it never quite, stops. 
It, it, it totally is. And then on top of that, I, I would imagine that the, the transition from, from supercross to outdoors, uh, for your, for your position is probably more hectic than any other time of the year where guys have spent their entire supercross year trying to get more and more used to a very, 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 very stiff motorcycle, uh, and then go outdoors where the jumps are big, the bumps are bigger. And, um, and, and it's who can, like basically get more and more comfortable with a softer setting, uh, maybe a slower rebound and stuff like that uh, to, to be successful outdoors. Like I know uh, bikes are stiffer than they were years ago, but um, a, a softer setting still works a lot better outdoors than, than say for supercross. Yeah, obviously, obviously you can't go out there with uh, supercross settings, but um, good, the good thing is um, we're fortunate to have a, a very successful MX season last year. So we have a very good base. Okay. So when Chase, Chase gets back on that and rides it for the first time, he'll probably say, what the hell is this? How did I race this? But, you know, it's remind him he won a lot of races with it real fast. So we'll just take that and um, go from there to try to implement whatever we learn supercross with new parts and try to apply it, apply it to a new motocross setting. But at least we have a good base. So that's, that's better than not having anything to start with. I like it. Um, all right. Last couple of questions I have for you, Shane Drew here on the Big MX Radio podcast for episode 906. Uh, and we're going to have to have him on in 94 episodes from now so they can be on episode 1000. Uh, is uh, how do you lead by an example, lead by example among your team? And uh, and how would you like to hope that uh, you are perceived by your uh, the, the guys who sort of report to you and the guys who you lead into battle every weekend? Ooh, that's a that's a difficult question. Um, well, I'd like I'd like to say I try to be very fair. You know, um, obviously I have a lot of experience, but I'll be the first one to admit I don't know everything, and I'm learning new stuff every day. So, back to your previous question about teammates. You know, having really good experienced mechanics, I lean on them lean on them all the time. Like, hey Jordan, Zim, I think we should do this, this, and this what's your opinion of it, you know? So I hope they look at me and realize I try to be fair and um, I try to lead by example by working hard, you know, not not trying to cut corners and not, you know, I don't, you know, it makes my wife mad, but I don't ever take days off. And um, I just try to, you know, I, I put in the work and hopefully everyone sees that and uh, puts in the work also, you know, if they see, if they see me and Lars working, seven days a week they will also you know yeah and that that work ethic is is something that always will will lead by example uh tell me a little bit about your support system you've mentioned you've you're you're married your your wife obviously a very uh loving and understanding woman uh how does he how does she help you um stay successful and 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 work uh the the level of hours that you do and and continue to uh, support you in that way so we've been uh we've been married for 20 years um, I met her, she was actually my chiropractor. Um, so she has a very successful two chiropractic offices. So she's, she's busy anyways, um, which helps, I think. Um, For sure. but so I was doing this job when we met and I've always done it and it's just kind of the routine we've come up with. And like I tell her all the time, what I do, it's not rocket scientists and I'm not saving lives or nothing, but um, 
I take my job very seriously and she sees how passionate I am about it. So she understands that, you know, I love my job and I'd go crazy if I was at home anyway. So she's, uh, um, she is a huge fan of the racing. I have a 32 year old daughter from my first marriage, super fan of our racing. And my 18 year old daughter is also the biggest fan of our racing. So they all sit at home on Saturday nights and watch supercross anyway. So, um, they're into it almost as much as I am, I think. So I think that helps. So that I think I think they understand what I'm trying to accomplish every day anyways. That's awesome. It's so good to hear that you've got a, a, a rock-solid support system. I don't think you'd be able to uh, do what you do without having uh, an awesome support system at home to make all that happen. Shane Drew, last question I have for you. I need your best Lars Lindstrom story, uh, one that hopefully uh, you, paints him in uh, an embarrassing light. Oh, that's, uh, I got to think about that one. I should have prepped mm. you with that. Yeah, I should have prepped me that. And I don't want to. I don't want to tell any story that would get him divorced either. So. Mm, okay, leave that one out then. Leave both of yeah, those out. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'll have to. I'll have to uh, take a rain check on that one. Okay. Well, that that would that leaves still, a perfect still, earmark he still signs for my contract. So um, I got to be real nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, that leaves a perfect earmark for, for us to welcome you back on the show uh, in a few months' time uh, when uh, people are, are filling my inbox with requests to have Shane Drew back on the Big MX Radio podcast. Man, this was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, it's good. I've been, uh, I've been home sitting by driveway for about 30 minutes now, but I didn't want to stop you, so. I noticed that the road noise had had uh, dissipated, so I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. Similar story. Yeah. I had uh, a conversation, a two and a half hour long conversation with Shane or uh, with Steve Lampson, and uh, he was stuck me talking his ear off at a gas station for over an hour um, <laughs> because he he had pulled off the off. He needed gas, uh, but was too polite to tell me so. Uh, so he yeah he just sat at a. a at a gas station for for almost an hour waiting for me to shut up about dirt bikes steve lampson he was factory honda when i first went there in 97 yes, fantastic person yes yeah i've, I've been meaning guy. to ch call him up again because uh like i said we had a lot nice long podcast uh back in 2014 but some time has passed so uh i think i need to call that guy up again uh, i actually tried to one day I tried to put a list together of all, all the riders we've had in and out, even fill-in riders over the years since I've been at Honda. Um, and there's so many years that I couldn't fill in everybody. And then I tried to fill in all the crews and mechanics and stuff, staff that we've had. And yeah, that was even more difficult. So someday I might finish that list. I might have to call you up and see as you seem to know everything every year. So. <laughs> I was going to say, like, uh, you need to get off the phone with me really quick because otherwise I'll start rattling off names. Uh, Shane Drew, this was so much fun, man. I really do appreciate you uh, taking the time and uh, sitting in your driveway uh, com to complete this podcast. Yeah, if, I'm, uh, if I go in now and my wife's mad, then this may have been the, what broke the, broke the icing, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back that I sat talking to you for 30 minutes instead of coming inside. Fair enough. It was worth it. Anyway, uh, <laughs> All right, thanks. awesome, man. Uh, appreciate the time. Don't hang up just yet, but for podcast sake, let's cut it off right there. You know, 
Shane told me he would give me an hour and a half, and honestly, I took up every single goddamn minute that uh, he said that he would give me. Uh, I don't know if that uh, keeps me in his good graces, but it seemed like he really enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Great conversation with him to be able to pick his brain and um, all the different stories and the different things that you can talk about with Shane Drew. Uh, and honestly, we sort of just scratched the surface on a bunch of things. And um, we had him and I had talked about doing this podcast late last week. And then uh, yesterday, I had mentioned him saying, hey, actually, I think it was this morning. This morning, I messaged him and said, hey, like, would you still want to come on the show? And he said, uh, yeah, I could probably do it today. Uh, I have uh, an hour and a half drive home. So let me know. And uh, now knowing that he uh, has an hour and a half commute home, uh, I, I know exactly when to schedule it with him again. But this podcast was executed with very little uh, time spent preparing for it. And maybe that comes through in the podcast. I hope it doesn't. Because um, I like to pride myself on being able to sort of just pull some random facts and stats uh, just off the top of my head. That's uh, one of the cruxes as to why I felt like it was this podcast was going to be something that I could do. Big MX Radio in general, not just uh, this this particular podcast. It's just my... Uh, weird ability to recall random facts and stats. Sometimes they're a bit askew. Uh, and uh, and Shane corrected me on a few of those ones. I thought that was pretty funny. And uh, yeah, just great to talk to him. This was actually the, the longest amount of time that I, I've st- stood and talked with him. Um, when I go to the races, I try not to take up too much of the time for from guys like Shane. I know they're extremely busy. And uh, I, I, I often think that they're Pretty much anybody who's working at the races is, is probably doing something more important than what I'm doing there. Uh, I, I try and report on the races. I, I take the race in and try and take as little amount of time from these very important people throughout the day. But uh, Shane has always been somebody who, from the very get-go, from the first time I met him, has been someone who who gives me the time of day and uh, makes sure that uh, yeah I'm taken care of and that's why uh, often when uh, and I'm pretty when I, um, I'm looking for a story or looking for someone to talk to or sometimes just looking for lunch I'll head over to uh, Factory Honda HRC or even when he was at uh, Team Yamaha throughout those years as well uh, there's always a friendly face for had to go see Shane Drew so uh, hopefully you enjoyed this podcast um, shout out to all of my loyal listeners who have been enjoying these podcasts we've put out I believe this will be our ninth podcast in two weeks um, which I am so proud to be able to have done for you guys uh, trying to do my best to, to cover the sport uh, as best I can and uh, do it continuously and consistently and uh, yeah if, if you guys have any questions if you have any requests of someone you'd like to hear on the podcast um, of course I'd love to have Ricky Carmichael uh, Eli Tomac uh, Adam Cienciarolo on as well um, and I look to get those guys on that's that's part of the whole process uh, I'm like uh, maybe it's it's not the best best uh, thing in the world that I, at, at 900 episodes I haven't been able to get those guys on um, but, uh, that has usually has more to do with me not asking for the, asking the question rather than, uh, them not being interested in. So anyway, um, thanks again to all the sponsors who make this happen. Race tech, Luxon MX, uh, WUSA, guts racing, Fox racing, Canada, um, 
Heartbeat Hot Sauce, great companies, SKDA Graphics, um, Phoenix Handlebars, all these companies that allow Big MX Radio to happen and uh, continuously be able to bring you guys uh, this content. So hopefully you're enjoying it. Would love if you guys can leave a review on iTunes or Spotify. And it doesn't have to be a five-star review. If I haven't earned that, please don't give it to us. Uh, that's how we get better as a podcast and uh, drives us to improve. So have yourselves a great rest of your day. Keep it on two wheels. And as always, thanks for listening.